Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. 60 Minutes is off this week. In its place, you will hear excerpts from two episodes of my podcast, The Debrief, with Major Garrett. The first part of that podcast you will hear is from my audio documentary of January 6th, the insurrection on Capitol Hill. The criminal assault of the legislative branch incited many believe by the sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump. We asked our CBS producers and correspondents who were there in the moment to describe what they saw, what they heard, what they were feeling and going through as journalists. You'll hear all of that. The other part of the podcast you'll hear is our send-up to and preparations for the inauguration of our 46th president, Joe Biden, reaching into sounds from inaugurations past and putting it into historical context. After the break, part one of our audio documentary, Insurrection, Capital Hell. 60 Minutes is off this week. You're listening to a special broadcast of CBS Audio's The Debrief with Major Garrett. Up next, behind the scenes of CBS News' coverage on January 6th, the day rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol. It was a terrifying experience. Um, I was in the chamber when the Capitol Police locked us in with the senators, um, I I could hear the shouts from outside. I've never been in this house. How about you? No, you own it. That's right. We own it. We own you. The Capitol Police came out in a phalanx or a, a organized uh, enforcement and pushed people back. They deployed paintball guns and pepper spray. 
Unfortunately, I took uh, some pepper spray right in the eye because I was too close to the building uh, and was not able to retreat because of the crowds behind us. Look, this is not what democracy looks like. This is what totalitarianism looks like. I'm the foreign affairs reporter for CBS. I've covered dictators. I've been in the room with them. You can see hundreds, if not thousands, of protesters supporting President Trump clashing with police. Many police are armed. They have long guns, wearing tactical gear. Some are covering their ears. It's unclear whether that's because of the roars of the crowds. And so we are there, and there are Capitol Police officers on the floor um, barricading up the door to enter the House chamber with benches and tables and just standing as, as people on the other side are banging the door, breaking the glass in the door, then they're screaming, there's yelling, Capitol Police are screaming for everybody to get down. As a line of police in riot gear with shields had moved the crowd off the West Lawn and the hangers-on at that point on a cold, cold, bitter night had turned angry and aggressive, screaming at the police. And in theory, these were law and order supporters, right? That was the whole Trump platform, law and order, screaming at the police, calling them traitors. One woman with a bullhorn right up near the officers, yelling, this is a civil war, a civil war. The government did this to us. We were normal, good, law-abiding citizens, and you guys did this to us. We want our country back. I am Major Garrett, and this is The Debrief, Episode 23, Insurrection, Capital Hell. CBS News special report. Breaking news in Washington as the House is in an unexpected recess as protesters have been clashing with police. CBS journalists ran toward the story of rebellion and rage. You will hear their harrowing accounts of terror, losing their eyesight due to pepper spray, being surrounded by thugs who destroyed their equipment, having objects thrown at them. You will also hear from lawmakers trapped inside the House chamber, hearing glass shatter. Elegant wooden doors groan against the weight of savages. Shots ringing out. But first, how we got here. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. On January 6th, President Trump incited an attack on Congress. The goal, occupy the Capitol, terrorize lawmakers, and overturn the 2020 election. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Mob rule was the monstrous criminal ambition of these counterfeit American patriots. They brought zip ties to arrest lawmakers. Some brought guns, others clubs and knives. Not all who came to the Capitol were violent, but many who stayed outside cheered on the mayhem and destruction. Though they may not have intended to do so, they aided and abetted an awful spectacle, predicated on a false premise, that Donald Trump had won an election he so clearly lost. We need you to stay in the fight. 
to be a check on what the Democrats and the radical left want to do and what they want to undo. The attack on the legislative branch of government endangered Vice President Mike Pence. Trump-inspired insurrectionists brought a gallows to Capitol Hill. Some chanted for Pence's hanging. Pence's offense? Following the law and Constitution to ensure that Congress properly counted the electoral votes legally cast and submitted for President-elect Joe Biden. For a crime only imaginable in the fever swamp of Trumpian vengeance, Pence hid in the Capitol for hours, eventually taking actions to stabilize the situation. Let's get back to work. President Trump never called to see if Pence, his most loyal and dogged advocate, was all right, to see if there was something he, the president, could do to rescue his vice president. As snarling Trump-inspired fanatics continued to swarm the Capitol, threatening the safety of everyone therein, President Trump told his wrecking crew via a video posted on Twitter that he loved them, that they were special. House Resolution 21, resolution calling on Vice President Michael R. Pence to convene and mobilize the principal officers of the executive departments of the cabinet to activate Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to declare President Donald J. Trump incapable of executing the duties of his office and to immediately exercise powers as acting president. The House of Representatives is now poised to impeach President Trump a second time. That will happen this week. A Senate trial and removal of the president is doubtful, but not impossible if Trump transgresses again. A handful of Republicans in the House and Senate have called on Trump to resign. The president intends to stay in power, virtually alone in the White House, surveying the smoldering ruins of his presidential legacy. No amount of past economic growth, judicial appointments, or border wall erected can compete with the unprecedented ignominy of January 6th. What history must record is President Trump's indelible fingerprints on all of the sickening strife. Six dead, including two Capitol Police officers. His rhetoric set in motion the stop the steal lie and gave his supporters false hope. Hope that metastasized and turned some of them into armed, anti-constitutional felons. Thousands of President Trump supporters have come to Washington, D.C. to protest the electoral results in a joint session of Congress today. Here now, sounds of January 6th. Hi, this is Alan He, one of the Capitol Hill producers for CBS. Right now, I'm in Nancy Cordes' office with the doors locked, lights off, windows covered, and electronics silenced. Um, earlier in the day, things were proceeding normally enough for an extraordinary day. Vice President Pence and Leader McConnell ignored the questions I threw at them. Mitt Romney took a jab at the president. It, it turns out that uh, telling the voters that the election is rigged is not a great way to turn out your voters. But things turned amiss after senators returned to their chamber on their side of the Capitol. The vice president and the United States Senate. I went to the Senate bathroom on the third floor of the Capitol, which oddly has a pretty great view of the East Front Plaza, and that's when I noticed that pretty soon after that protesters had breached the barricades and were on the plaza itself, and then we were told by the cops to be careful around the windows, and not soon after we heard an emergency alert telling us to shelter in place, so then we evacuated to our 
uh, offices, we were told to lock the doors, turn off the lights and silence our electronics, and that's where I am now. Hi there, it's Josh Gross with CBS News. I was on the Capitol steps on the north front, the side closest to Union Station, when uh, supporters of the president attempted to break into the building, the Capitol building, through the north doors. About 40 to 50 much more enthusiastic people were yanking on the doors and trying to pull them open. At one point, one individual was able to break the door when the uh, uh, Capitol Police came out and threatened to shoot them with pepper spray. The protesters uh, again attempted to breach the doors. Both doors were broken open. At what point, the Capitol Police came out in a phalanx or uh, uh, organized uh, enforcement and pushed people back. They deployed paintball guns and pepper spray. Unfortunately, I took uh, some pepper spray right in the eye because I was too close to the building uh, and was not able to retreat because of the crowds behind us. It's taken at least 45 minutes for my vision to return. This is Grace Seegers, political reporter for CBS News. I was in the Senate chamber with the senators present and it was a terrifying experience um i was in the chamber when the capitol police locked us in with the senators um i i could hear the shouts from outside um and then i was there when they evacuated us with the senators to a secondary location for several hours. Smell the tear gas. Just sitting around with Capitol Police and FBI and ATF and Secret Service with their machine guns just gathering around us. I can't believe it happened. I can't believe I was there. And I think it's going to take a long time for me to process what happened, the fact that there is a domestic terror attack in my place of work, in a place where I should feel safe, and I was there. CBS News radio correspondent Steve Dorsey watched events unfold from inside the Capitol. I'm inside one of the Capitol Hill broadcasting booths on the House side. I'm about three floors up, and I'm looking through my glass window onto the what we call the west front this faces the national mall you can see the the washington monument you can see the the lincoln memorial and i'm looking at crowds of trump supporters many holding trump flags american flags i can see officers below me uh some in tactical gear armed with weapons and what looks like they're carrying pepper spray canisters just below me, some are holding their ears as if the roar of the crowd is too loud for them. Uh, occasionally I see bits of smoke, sometimes loud loud bangs. I don't know where they're coming from. Shortly thereafter, Dorsey and everyone inside the Capitol, the core of our Democratic Republic, was under siege. I repeat, security threats, Reporters, including myself, have been locked into the press workspaces. There have been warnings to 
stay inside. It's unclear exactly what's going on. Officers have pushed all of the press uh, back into this area where staff are moving around and securing all the entrances and exits. Lock the door down there. Can you lock it? If you're just tuning in, 60 Minutes is off this week. I'm CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett, and you're listening to a special broadcast of my show, The Debrief. And if you like what you hear, you can listen to this episode, Insurrection Capital Hell, as full podcast. Just search The Debrief wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, what it was like for an actual member of Congress during the Capitol siege. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. 60 Minutes is off this week. You're listening to a special broadcast of my podcast, The Debrief. In this episode, we're taking you behind the scenes of the Capitol siege. Virginia Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a former CIA agent trained to respond to disorienting events and sudden threats, was inside the House chamber as the rabid mob drew near. She shared her experiences with our sister podcast, CBS Audio's Intelligence Matters. And at that point, we had Speaker Pelosi was seated in the speaker's chair presiding over the proceedings. And um, it, the debate was ongoing, and it was set to be a two-hour debate uh, in five-minute increments. And so we were a couple people through that list. When there was a little bit of a commotion, Capitol Police officers came in and quietly went up to uh, Chairman McGovern. Um, and then ultimately went up on the dais and, you know, quietly spoke to Speaker Pelosi. We'll stand in recess until the call of the chair. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. Congressman Jim McGovern of Massachusetts is chairman of the Rules Committee. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was presiding over debate on Arizona, the first state of challenged electors. The hasty conferring of Pelosi and McGovern set in motion their evacuation and that of all top Democratic and Republican House leaders. So it was very clear that something was happening at that point in time. The protests outside, um, and the, the, at this point, still seemingly protests, um, had just become really, uh, were, were meet, reaching some level of a fever pitch. We got an alert that there was a potential bomb threat in one of the House office buildings. It later became clear there were two bomb threats. Pipe bombs were placed at the Republican and Democratic National Committee headquarters buildings adjacent to the Capitol complex, and one working theory is those bombs were placed there to divert resources from the protection of the Capitol. So then all of a sudden, it, things escalated very, very quickly when there was an announcement made um, that people had entered the Capitol. We were locking down. Uh, there was a sort of a furious effort made by the door attendants and the Capitol Police officers to lock all the doors. An order to lock the doors of the House of Representatives to prevent it from being overrun by American marauders hell-bent on overturning a fairly won and thoroughly scrutinized election. 
Uh, then there was another announcement made that uh, a chemical ir- irritant had been uh, sprayed, and so everyone needed to get out their gas masks, and you know, they're kept under the seat. So um, it, it elevated and escalated really quickly. And then we started to make our way to evacuate. Thanks to COVID restrictions, the House floor was emptier than usual. Members debating Arizona's election were on the floor. Other lawmakers were in the gallery seats above. Those are the seats you see filled with spectators during a State of the Union address. Everybody stay down! Get down! And, um, and then it was, we need to get out, we need to get out now. And the what was supposed to be the egress point was on the opposite side of the gallery where we were. And each section of the gallery is blocked off by, I mean, there's, there's rows of seating, movie theater style, but then there's also... Um, bars meant to keep people in their assigned gallery. So we're climbing under them, climbing over them uh, in order to try and get to the doors that we, um, at the time, were told we would be able to get out of. Um, as we were going um, around, there was kind of a frenzied call, everybody put your gas mess on, put your gas mess on. And that's when these insurrectionists had reached the Capitol floor, uh, the, the chamber door. And so we are there and there are Capitol Police officers on the floor um, barricading up the door to enter the House chamber with benches and tables and just standing as as people on the other side are banging the door, breaking the glass in the door. The the door is a mix of decorative metal and glass and wood. They're breaking through that glass, and they're screaming, there's yelling. Capitol Police are screaming for everybody to get down. Spanberger, like all House members, wears the same distinctive lapel pin. That's so Capitol Police know they have floor privileges and access to all Capitol offices and corridors. We're yelling for everybody to take their pins off. Then there was a, you know, an order to get everybody to get down on the ground, flat on the ground. My thought was, it, it, depending upon their intention, we don't know their intention, but you don't want to be readily identifiable. You know, If they're there to target people and not just property, you don't want to be identifiable as a member of Congress. You take your pin off, and if anybody asks who you are, you tell them that you're a secretary. And, you know, to be clear, not that there's, um, you know, no hierarchy here, but if they're targeting someone for effect, it would be members of Congress. And certainly this was a a terrorist attack um, from my perspective, uh, an event waged for political gain and meant to inspire fear that, that we shouldn't make ourselves readily available or readily identifiable. This is banana republic crap. Wisconsin GOP Congressman Mike Gallagher sheltered in place in his office. I mean, the whole thing, was absolute chaos. It was not something I thought I would ever see in the United States Capitol. So it was a very dark day. It was a very concerning day. I was very concerned for a lot of my colleagues. And I- Chris Van Cleve covered the protest outside the Capitol, starting on the East Front near the Supreme Court and then moving to the West Front that looks out over the National Mall. I remember looking up where the inauguration stage and bleachers has been built, watching people climb up the scaffold and then start to hear the booms of the flashbangs and the smoke that the police were deploying. And that was, I think, when it, made, it was clear to me that this was going to get out of hand, that whatever demonstration, whatever message was trying to be sent to lawmakers was about to take a very radical turn uh, into something, into uncharted territory for American democracy, something I, I've never seen. And yet, Van Cleve also witnessed something else, a dichotomy within the ugliness. On one hand, you had violent, 
rioting invaders of the Capitol. And 200 yards away, you had people who had no idea that was going on other than the occasional bangs or booms in the background and some smoke that might pop up in the distance. But back there, it felt more like a block party. People uh, there to have their say, have their moment, and go home. It really was a tale of two very different experiences depending upon where you ended up. CBS News Special Report. And I'm Stephen Portnoy as we continue our special CBS News live coverage of the siege on Capitol Hill. Steve Dorsey with a key point there on Capitol Hill, and that is that the hundreds of protesters who are gathered on the west front of the Capitol remain there essentially undisturbed. I just want to interrupt. There's an announcement. Late in the afternoon, this announcement rang out in Capitol Hill offices. Attention. A curfew is in effect at 1,800 hours until 600 hours tomorrow. All individuals must leave the U.S. Capitol grounds or be subject to arrest. CBS producer Christina Ruffini has traveled the world on the State Department beat. Before that, she covered numerous protests in the nation's capital, a city familiar with absorbing, managing, and celebrating peaceful dissent. I've covered a lot of protests in my career and a lot of riots, Baltimore, Charlottesville. I've covered anti-war, pro-life, pro-Trump, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, you name it. None of it really prepared me for yesterday. I wasn't surprised I just wasn't really prepared. Nobody thought to reinforce the U.S. Capitol. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand how they got in. I don't understand how they stayed in. Look, this is not what democracy looks like. This is what totalitarianism looks like. I'm the foreign affairs reporter for CBS. I've covered dictators. I've been in the room with them. And I always thought I was lucky enough to live in a country where people were smart enough to know the truth from fiction. After darkness fell, on that dark day in American history, the rioters began to step out of the Capitol and away. Before leaving entirely, some looked for one more round of violence, of retribution against facts, truth, journalism. Those who came to the Capitol under the protection of the First Amendment's right to free assembly were not content merely to desecrate that right. They had to trample the parallel First Amendment right of a free press. Uh, Chip Reed, I believe, is uh, near Capitol Hill and has uh, some new information to share with us. Chip? Yeah, I'm just on Constitution Avenue. CBS correspondent Chip Reed was stationed with other reporters just outside of the Senate and on the edge of a well-manicured park. uh, Out of nowhere, we were suddenly surrounded by about 40 or 50 uh, protesters who started chanting uh, things that I can't repeat uh, about the media on TV. They started throwing bottles. They started pushing people. They picked up the uh, metal fences that we were surrounded surrounded by and throwing them at us. Uh, And uh, we, for our own safety, evacuated the area. But we did stay long enough to get some pretty good video of them smashing uh, the equipment, uh, cameras, uh, uh, sound equipment, everything they could get their hands on. Uh, They just completely took over that. Uh, that that spot uh, as they shouted USA USA and and God bless America. The police did not arrive in time to protect Reed and other reporters. Much of their gear destroyed. 
we were on our own, and uh, it was it was a scary moment. You know, I had a flak jacket and a helmet with me. Uh, the last time I wore a flak jacket and a helmet, uh, well, a whole series of times, was when I spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it is so disturbing to have to wear a helmet and a flak jacket on the grounds of the United States Capitol. CBS White House correspondent Weijia Jang and producer Finn Gomez monitored events from the White House, where, for a time, the president cheered on those who supported him and resisted calls from frantic congressional Republicans fearing for their lives and for the Capitol itself. Republican leaders were calling on the president to make remarks because his supporters are going to listen to him and probably nobody else. I want to quickly bring in Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader. Um, Leader McCarthy, have you spoken with the president and asked him to perhaps come to the Capitol and tell the supporters it's time to leave? I've spoken to the president. I asked him to talk to the nation to tell him to stop this. This is not who we are. And instead of doing that in a live address, which carries a lot more urgency, he taped about a minute video saying to them that they should go home, but also reminding them that he loves them and that he understands why they're in pain. And so he never really explicitly said what you did was wrong and you need to stop. And that was unbelievable. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. As the day wore on, a sense of regret deepened among those still working in the Trump White House. We spoke to a uh, White House official tonight who said that, that all they've done for the last four years is for not because of the events that have transpired today. And I do want to point out that, again, President Trump didn't condemn the protesters for their behavior because they were supporting him. On the flip side, when there are other protests against him, you know, he has threatened to um, press federal charges. He has threatened to send out the National Guard to control them. It it just seems to be a little two-sided. To that point, on the afternoon of January 6th, the governors of Virginia and Maryland mobilized their National Guard forces to protect the Capitol sensing the president would not give orders to call off or repel his supporters' attack on the legislative branch. Civilians who carried out that assault retreated reluctantly, pushed back by armed reinforcements. Chris Van Cleve witnessed and listened to the seditious retreat. This was as a line of police in riot gear with shields had moved the crowd off the West Lawn, and the hangers-on at that point on a cold, cold, bitter night, had turned angry and aggressive, screaming at the police, screaming at the police, calling them traitors. One woman with a bullhorn right up near the officers yelling, this is a civil war, a civil war, pledging to be back. Another man in a combat helmet and what looked like a carrier that a soldier would wear for body armor began screaming that he was coming back, that they were coming back, and next time they would come back with rifles. There cannot be a next time without a first time. 
And for those, like myself, who said we could not see the first time coming, we must ask ourselves if that is genuinely true. Could we not see this win? Long before the election, Trump said the only way he could lose is if the election was rigged and he would not assure the nation a peaceful transition. Could we not see this when Trump called the election stolen and began to shovel ever higher mounds of falsehoods, conspiracy theories, and constitutional quackery? Could we not see it when election workers in swing states were menaced simply for counting legal votes? When election officials received death threats and had to move their families to undisclosed locations? When the president was recorded on tape trying to bully Georgia's Secretary of State into overturning an election result three separate recounts had verified? So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. We could see it. We just couldn't believe it. We should be forgiven for that. Who wants to assume the worst about their fellow Americans? Who wants to believe a president could so poison their notions of the rule of law, so corrode their belief in the Constitution, so mangle plain and obvious truths? Lives have been lost due to the president's malignant and intentional lies. A great nation's reputation has been sullied. Our friends are troubled. Our enemies are jubilant. Yes, constitutional guardrails held on January 6th, but they are now smeared with blood. Bloodshed for a lie that grew more gangrenous and deadly by the day. David Becker is a CBS News election law expert. The responsibility for this resides 100% with the current occupant of the White House. Let's be absolutely clear about this. He incited insurrection. He encouraged an attempted coup. And it was all because he could not process the idea that he lost an election, which he lost soundly. The president found sympathizers in Congress who knew better, but nevertheless said something might be done on January 6th to reverse an election that all 50 states and the District of Columbia had already certified. They knew nothing could be done, but to curry favor with the Trump base, they let this toxic fairy tale run wild, pretending it could have no explosive consequences. As has often been observed, the most wicked lies are the ones we tell ourselves. This all flows from the creation of an alternate reality, a completely false alternate reality, that is being spread by the President of the United States and his allies and being facilitated by social media platforms. Many of the people ingesting this toxicity, um, I have sympathy for. I think they're victims in some ways, not all of them. There are many who are spreading this, who are acting in violent ways and they're criminals. And it again is tied back to the debasement of their office by certain members of Congress spreading some of these rumors that there was some magic cheat code in the Constitution that gave the vice president the ability to anoint a president in contravention of the will of the people. This is a shameful episode in American history. Shame is not forever. Neither is democracy. May we burn with the former to preserve the latter.
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 60 Minutes is off this week. You're listening to a special broadcast of CBS Audio's The Debrief with Major Garrett. Up next, Major explores the history of Inauguration Day. Inauguration Day is heavy on tradition. The swearing-in ceremony followed by a luncheon, a parade, and an evening of parties and dancing. But in cases of presidents who died in office, inaugurations were brief and private affairs. John Tyler was the first vice president to succeed a president who died in office. Andrew Johnson, the first president to succeed an assassinated president, took the oath of office in the Kirkwood House in Washington, D.C., a high-rise hotel, following Lincoln's death in April 1865. Lyndon Johnson's first inauguration was held at Love Field in Dallas, aboard Air Force One, following the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. U.S. District Judge Sarah Hughes administered the oath, the only woman in American history to do so. Gerald Ford was inaugurated in the East Room on August 9, 1974, after Richard Nixon became the first and only president to resign. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. To read inaugural addresses is to skip through American history, to land on the flagstones each president has laid before himself, goals, philosophies, always in reverent language about who came before and America's evolving, sometimes tortured journey of democracy. Conditions must be provided under which people can make a living. Calvin Coolidge was the first president to deliver an inaugural address broadcast on radio, the year 1925. Peace will come when there's a realization that only under a reign of law based on righteousness, supported by the religious conviction of the brotherhood of man... Harry Truman gave voice to the coming Cold War in 1949. Communism is based on the belief that man is so weak and inadequate that he is unable to govern himself and therefore requires the rule of strong masters. Dwight Eisenhower, who led the Allies to victory in World War II, was one of the very few presidents to open his inaugural address with a prayer. Give us, we pray, the power to discern clearly right from wrong and allow all our words and actions to be governed thereby and by the laws of this land. Kennedy in 1961 spoke not only to the perils of the Cold War, but the need for a new generation of Americans to lead the way. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Johnson won a landslide election in 1964 after Kennedy's assassination. 
He was about to launch his Great Society, a combined federal effort to address poverty and civil rights. I do not believe that the Great Society is the ordered, changeless, and sterile battalion of the ants. It is the excitement of becoming, always becoming, trying, probing, falling, resting, and trying again, but always trying and always gaining. Richard Nixon followed in 1969 and focused on an approaching benchmark for America. Eight years from now, America will celebrate its 200th anniversary as a nation. And within the lifetime of most people now living, mankind will celebrate that great new year which comes only once in a thousand years, the beginning of the third millennium. What kind of a nation we will be, what kind of a world we will live in, whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. Nixon's own choices, as it turned out, ruined his presidency before the bicentennial. Jimmy Carter, in his 1977 inaugural address, tried to pick up the pieces and soften the image of the all-powerful presidency. Let us create together a new national spirit of unity and trust. Your strength can compensate for my weakness, and your wisdom can help to minimize my mistakes. Ronald Reagan defeated Carter in 1980, and his inaugural address heralded a new Republican effort to reduce Washington's role in our national life. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Reagan's presidency was the last defined by Cold War hostility. George H.W. Bush used his inaugural address in 1989 to celebrate the triumph over communism. The totalitarian era is passing. Its old ideas blown away like leaves from an ancient, lifeless tree. A new breeze is blowing, and a nation, refreshed by freedom, stands ready to push on. There's new ground to be broken and new action to be taken. But this is a time when the future seems a door you can walk right through into a room called tomorrow. But in that room called tomorrow awaited Bill Clinton, who defeated Bush in 1992 and became our first baby boomer president. He was the one who relentlessly said, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Our democracy must be not only the envy of the world, but the engine of our own renewal. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. George W. Bush used his 2005 inaugural address, the first, as we said, 
after 9-11 to unveil his new approach to a West menaced by terrorism. Wars were already underway in Afghanistan and Iraq. The survival of liberty in our land increasingly depends on the success of liberty in other lands. The best hope for peace in our world is the expansion of freedom in all the world. Those wars linger to this day. President Obama's historic election led to a 2009 inaugural address steeped in the language of diversity and inclusion. We are a nation of Christians and Muslims. Jews and Hindus, and non-believers. We are shaped by every language and culture, drawn from every end of this earth. And because we have tasted the bitter swill of civil war and segregation and emerged from that dark chapter stronger and more united, we cannot help but believe that the old hatreds shall someday pass, that the lines of tribes shall soon dissolve, that as the world grows smaller, our common humanity shall reveal itself, and that America must play its role in ushering in a new era of peace. President Trump gave an inaugural address that did not address America's unique mission to promote democracy. He did not seek to place America within the interconnected, globalized world, but instead as its own agent with its own agenda. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett, CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent, and you have been listening to The Debrief. That's my podcast. This is a special broadcast of our CBS Audio podcast that's running in place of 60 Minutes. Now, before the break, you heard an excerpt from our episode devoted to the history of the Inauguration Day, which was recorded prior to the inauguration of our 46th President, Joe Biden. In his inaugural address... President Biden said some things we don't typically hear in those addresses. He talked about white supremacy, domestic terrorism, and how our divisions in politics have become almost something that feels like a total war, and they don't need to be. He said we need to find a way back to truth. He also said that the drive for justice in our country will be deferred no longer. That is a big commitment from the new incoming president, President Biden. And it's about that that his administration, he said, will be focused, in addition to dealing with what he called cascading crises, the pandemic, the economic situation, racial justice, and climate change. All of that was in inaugural address. When you listen to our podcast devoted to that topic, you can compare it with other inaugurations and addresses in the past. So thanks for joining us for this special broadcast. Remember, this show, a weekly politics-focused audio documentary, is available as a podcast. Just search The Debrief with Major Garrett wherever you get your podcasts. 60 Minutes will be back on the radio next week. For CBS Audio, I'm Major Garrett. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com.